Hello and welcome to the Hopkins Biotech Podcast Club segment, where we share conversations that are crowdsourced by the clubs and initiatives here at Johns Hopkins. If you're interested in sharing a conversation on our platform as part of this club segment, feel free to contact us at hopkinsbiotechpodcast at gmail.com. In this episode, we share a happy hour chat conducted by Farai Sakipa, Director of Industry Relations at the Hopkins Biotech Network. Enjoy the episode. Well, welcome everyone to our second installment of the H3C series, the HBN Happy Hour Chats. Uh, this is a new initiative from our industry relations branch of the Hopkins Biotech Network. But first of all, um, my name is Taylor Cottle. I'm the president of the organization. And the Hopkins Biotech Network is an association focused on the transition from academic careers to non-academic industry careers, from biotech to pharmacy to med devices. Uh, we're happy to have five branches centered on different parts of that transition experience uh, to meet the needs of our student body. So today with the industry relations branch, uh, we'll be talking a little bit about um, you know, the digital transition in pharmaceuticals. So today we have uh, Cindy Hoots with us, who's the chief digital officer and CIO at AstraZeneca. Uh, so thank you for being with us today, Cindy, and I'll... Uh, uh, Transfer the stage to over to you. So thanks so much. Appreciate you guys having me. Thank you, Taylor. Thank you, Cindy. Uh, hi, all, and welcome. Uh, it's really wonderful to see you here this evening. Uh, a quick audio check by way of the thumbs up if everyone can hear me all right. All right, perfect. Uh, so before we jump in, I would like to take a quick moment to express a sincere and emphatic message of thanks on behalf of everyone at HBN. Uh, my name is Farai, and I'll be moderating today's session. I'm currently an MBA candidate at Cary Business School. Why am I doing this? Well, I have a strong interest in science and technology. At HBN, I'm a member of the industry relations team. We focus on bridging the gap between industry professionals and the Hopkins community, and we do so by organizing industrial talks and providing a platform for networking events. Today's session is part of a new virtual discussion series that we call Happy Hour Chats, or H3C. We hope to form a small community where we can have interesting discussions about pressing topics in the industry. Today, we'll be talking about the digitalization of biotech, and with that, we're incredibly honored and thrilled to welcome Cindy Hoots. Cindy is a champion for leveraging technology to make a meaningful impact on people's lives. She's an international speaker, and she serves as a guest lecturer at a number of colleges on the topics of digital, AI, and leadership. Cindy, thank you so much for joining us today. We're going to be doing this much like a fireside chat. Uh, Cindy is going to spend about 20, 30 to 40 minutes answering questions that have already been prepared around a variety of themes. We'll then open up the floor for questions from the audience. Feel free, of course, to add them to the chat feature that we have here in the Zoom webinar at any point. So without further delay, let's get started. Cindy, you have a very diverse background in terms of places that you've lived, US, UK, South Africa, and industries in which you've worked. Can you share a little bit about your journey and how you ended up in the role of Chief Digital Officer and CIO at AZ? Yeah, so I am actually originally from Trinidad and Tobago, which is an island in the Caribbean just off the coast of Venezuela. And I'm fourth generation from Trinidad. So my siblings and I were born there. My parents were born there. My great or my grandparents were born there. And then um, my great grandparents had immigrated um, to the island. And um, when I was young, my parents decided to move to, to the US and I did all of my schooling in California. I grew up in California um, before moving to uh, the East Coast with my husband when I got married and then we kind of sailed off to England and then South Africa and then England again. And, and I moved back to the U.S. Um, last um, January when I took this job. Um, so I was, you know, going to high school in California. We had a career day and um, I'm uh, a little bit older than all of you. Um, and computers were quite new back then. And it was a new field um, that was kind of up and coming in the, in the mid eighties. And, uh, just, you know, felt like, you know, something new and, and innovative and really captured my attention. So um, I went to school. Um, I, I remember when I was going through 
I have a degree in computer information systems. I think I programmed in 17 languages, starting with assembler. And um, my first job was the COBOL CICS programmer um, at uh, American Medical International. And uh, so really kind of came up through the IT ranks. Uh, I was living in California. My husband took a promotion to the East Coast. I moved from hospital healthcare environments to um, Mars Incorporated, um, and which is headquartered here in McLean, Virginia. And uh, But I was living in New Jersey. And then really just took a variety of jobs um, in IT throughout. Uh, I spent 16 years at Mars. And then um, I, I did one rotation into finance just to work in a, another functional area other than just um, IT. Um, and then had the opportunity to, to go over um, to, to the UK and, and ultimately ended up as the CIO for Africa for SAB Miller, living in South Africa. And uh, we went through a, a big uh, M&A with uh, InBev. And uh, um, I decided I wanted to go back to the UK and uh, took a job at Unilever. And then started in my current role uh, in January. Uh, right before the pandemic hit, so it's uh, it's been a bit of a wild ride, um, changing industries, changing companies, a new role, new industry, and um, you know I still haven't met in person sixty percent of my direct reports that sit on the ITLT, so the IT leadership team. So um, I, I would say probably the one thing across my career is is I've really done almost every job in IT. Um, and that breadth and that perspective really, is, I think, helped me um, to be able to do the job that I have today. So, Wow, wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for that, Cindy. Um, you know, so, so life sciences companies are, are increasingly embracing digital um, as a means of unlocking innovation. And as part of that, the digital officer title is becoming a standard within C-suites. Could you shed some light on the work that you do? Uh, and what your mandate is, and at a deeper level, how does this differ from other similar roles in and around the industry? Yeah. So, I mean, I think first I've, I've probably spent a couple minutes talking about the CDO role because it is a new role. Um, I think in many ways what you're starting to see is um, CIOs, I think we didn't do enough to stay modern and we didn't do enough to stay ahead of the digital curve. And it created some white space um, that was filled by a role called the chief digital officer. And in many companies, that started as the head of marketing. And it was all about digital marketing. And it started in a lot of the consumer good type companies. But quickly, what you realize is the digital transformation is a combination of the technology as well as the mindset and the cultural shift. And what we're starting to see now is actually. Um, that chief digital officer role starting to be combined with the CIO role more now, where five years ago, it was really more of a separate role. And I think it just speaks to the fact that it really is this combination of new ways of working, a new mindset and a new culture together and enabled through technology. So um, that's what kind of happened when I took this job at AstraZeneca. Um, they didn't have a chief digital officer. Um, but when when they were recruiting this role, they put that together. And um, for me, it's very similar in the role. If as technologists um, and CIOs, we really embrace the fact that we are business leaders first and we're technologists second, and we approach things with a business mindset, then you almost don't need a separate role. And so one of the things I'm trying to do is say, how do we think about it really just as one role? Because Ultimately, the goal is to make the entire company digital. And the moment you do that, you don't have to call it digital anymore. So if you think of some of your kind of favorite digital companies, they probably aren't even using the word digital anymore. But right now we use it to signal a new way of working um, and, you know, kind of a new approach. And so it's helpful. It just kind of signals to both internally and externally that, we're looking to transform, we're looking to do things differently. So I think for me, that's kind of a philosophical kind of, you know, answer to what is the chief digital officer. Um, the reason, uh, maybe I'll give one more piece of context before we kind of answer the question. 
you know, at the turn of the, the 1900s, we were in the middle of the industrial revolution. And then we got to the digital revolution, which by all accounts has been going on for probably the better part of, you know, 20 years. And in some cases, even a little bit longer than that. I think what's coming next is what we call a biological revolution, where technology will enable us to drive hyper-personalization, whether that's on the music you listen to, the foods you eat, or, or the medicines that you take. And I think it's one of the things that really excited me about, out of all of the industries that I've worked in, the thought of being part of life sciences and being a pharmaceutical company um, is really exciting because we are now at the forefront of a biological revolution that actually nobody's really talking about all that much right now. But I think in the next two to three years, as we learn to use digital in much more precise ways um, and, and we drive precision medicine and things like that, um, we'll start to see this emerging of, of a biological revolution and, and it will permeate everything that, that we do. And so number one, I mean, for, for all of you on the, on the, uh, call that are, you know, also in this space and in this field, um, I think we've got some really exciting times ahead. And while the pharmaceutical industry that I'm in is maybe as an industry has been a little bit lagging on the whole digital journey, I think we're going to leapfrog and be at the forefront of the biological revolution, which, which is really exciting. Um, so I think for me, just thinking about, even though you know, kind of the life science industries on the tail end of a lot of this transformation. Um, it's helpful in a way because we've gotten to see what has happened before and we're able to learn and we're able to do things far more quickly. Um, five, seven years ago, we were still trying to prove if the tech would work, you know, trying to understand what can I do with AI and how would you use blockchain? And we weren't even really sure if the technologies we're robust enough. And I think where we are now is much more of the technologies by and large are there. There's new things coming out, you know, the, the need for quantum computing because the fact that we're going to be processing so much data and, and other things will evolve. But by and large, the tech is there. And so now it's about how do we get the mindset and the cultural shift and upskill people to kind of thrive in, in this world. And I'm not sure I answered your whole question. So if there was something. No, I think you did. Thank you. Thank you for that. And I think it's a good segue into, um, you know, the term digital transformation has kind of been loosely thrown around in biotech and pharma for years. Um, however, you know, some might argue that there's been little by way of measurable destruction. Uh, so with the pandemic sort of sparking a mass movement towards digital systems um, almost overnight, do you feel that the industry is at an inflection point? And will there be a fundamental shift in the operating models of companies, uh, the results in differentiated economics, uh, new and more effective ways to deliver products and services um, that sort of dramatically improve outcomes for both patients and really just kind of across the value chain? Yeah, I mean, I'm obviously new to the industry, but absolutely I'm seeing a shift in the 15 months that I've been in my current role. And I think. Um, what COVID did overnight was to show us that all of our previous conceived notions about how our industry had to run was completely turned on its head, you know, and, you know, probably, you know, a year and a half ago, nobody would have thought that they would do their doctor's visit over Zoom, you know, and it wasn't even a paradigm that, that people could wrap their heads around. And as a result, what's happened is we've helped people really experience what digital is like in the, every facet of their of their life. The way they work, the way they buy their groceries, the way they were buying goods and services online, um, the way they interact with doctors or other providers. And as a result, almost everyone now has a new personal insight as to how this could really work and how it could affect them. And that's the biggest part of it. But then what we had to do and some of the things that we had to do was, you know, we couldn't get um, our scientists into the labs because everyone, you know, was working from home. So in days, we were having to devise new applications, new ways to remotely connect our scientists into the lab so that they could use the instruments in the lab 
from the, the comfort of their own home. Likewise, in our manufacturing facilities, we were seeing if a, if a piece of equipment broke down, all of a sudden we were using virtual reality headsets and we'd have an expert on that machine who was based in Italy fixing or telling the operator in our factory in Sweden how to fix the equipment because he couldn't travel there. But imagine in the previously what would have happened is that expert would have gotten on a plane, he'd have taken a day, he'd have flown there, he would have fixed the machine, and then he would have taken a day to get back home. Now, because we can do it digitally, you can have one expert like that now servicing, you know, multiple people in a single day, where before he would have donated probably three days just to come fix our, you know, equipment. And so, again, we're, we're really seeing that shift in, in so many different aspects. Our clinical trials, we went from people who normally would come into a clinic, a hospital, um, to, you know, be administered medicine, et cetera. All of a sudden, we had to enroll people virtually. We had to provide instructions of how they would self-administer. We had to create a direct-to-patient shipment process so that we could get the medicines to them for the trial. Um, and again, it changed the way we work, but it also changed the expectations now, I think going forward, of how people want to you know, participate in these trials going forward because we took the friction out. Everything was there at home. They were able to you know, not have to drive an hour to a clinic to you know, take their medicine. They could now have it delivered to them and do it when it was convenient. So I think that is going to cause this massive shift, that inflection point that you talk about, um, to the way people just expect to have goods and services and, and products, you know, interacting with them going forward. So, yeah, I definitely think we're, we're at, uh, at that point of change. Right. And it, you talked about uh, uh, COVID uh, to some degree. Um, AstraZeneca is one of the first organizations to develop a vaccine um, for COVID-19. How did digital influence that process? Yeah, so it, the vaccine itself was um, actually a longstanding vaccine that was developed through Oxford University. So they did the science. And what we did was the manufacturing of the, disease, uh, of the vaccine as a, as a collaboration. And you may have read about that in, in, in the news um, or seen it on the news. Where we saw digital really come in, again, was the clinical trials, the process I just described, how we had to enroll people um, without meeting them, how we had to get drugs to them, um, et cetera. Um, and then thinking through, like, how would we actually conduct the trials, et cetera. But the other thing is we had to stand up new manufacturing facilities. So in 46 days, we stood up a new facility here in the US. Um, and again, it was all driven by analytics, you know, putting in new systems, all of a sudden, we needed new insights, none of the reporting or the dashboards, all of that needed to be updated. So you start to see um, the the fact that we could leverage technology in a new way just allowed us to really work at a pace that previously our industry wasn't working at that pace but in terms of the science itself the science is a is a proven technology they just you know overlaid you know the covid considerations to it but um yeah it's been it's been pretty remarkable i have to say and i think that um that really touches on transformation and with with digital uh, like many tools as it sort of becomes commoditized and, and gains from early adoption as we see in a lot of industries, um, they tend to sort of fade, right, as technology becomes cheaper and more accessible. Uh, and in a sense, uh, technology itself is sort of unlikely to be the game changer. Rather, uh, sustainable differentiation is the result of being able to generate cutting-edge insights and, and really integrate technology into the business and its possibilities. So to that end, um, how exactly are you building out your digital function? Uh, what sort of organizational changes are needed and are you having to reshape the culture in any way or are people buying into it or, you know, have you faced any resistance as you've been trying to do that? Yeah. So I think I posted something on LinkedIn that said, you know, who's done the most for your digital transformation, the, 
the CEO, the CDO, or COVID. <laughs> and I think that um, we're getting the buy-in because everyone experienced together what this new world would feel like. And that is always the hardest part of a digital transformation is people, especially when they've been in an industry or they've worked a certain way for a long period of time, they don't understand, intellectually they understand, but they don't understand what it's going to feel like to work in this new way. So there is a huge component of um, how do you create a mindset shift? I think all of us got a boost um, because of COVID and the fact that people had to, to really learn that quite quickly. But I think the other thing is, how do you democratize technology? So one of the things that we're doing is, how do we create technology as a self-service? Because what we want to do is empower everyone in the company to use digital in a way that you know, works for them at the time that it works for them. So if one of our data scientists you know, at 2 a.m. on a Saturday uh, has a brilliant idea, what you don't want is them having to call up IT and say, could you provision me a new environment for me to do my modeling? So what we did um, last year was we created just through a catalog, the ability for a data scientist to go in and basically order a new environment. And in four minutes, that environment's now available where previously they would have asked somebody in IT and it would have probably taken us 10 days to prioritize it and do the work and get it back to them. Um, and so what we're trying to do is say, how do we democratize technology? I want it to be safe and secure. So I don't want everyone in the company creating tech. You know, we've got data privacy, we've got cybersecurity concerns, all of those things. But there's ways to democratize it in a way that's safe and secure, but that we can empower people. And I think that for me is one of the big kind of principles of digital is you can put technology in the hands of people and really empower them to do the work they need to do um, rather than the technology only sitting within the IT department. Right. And, and you, you spoke a little bit about data scientists. What about uh, talent recruitment on the commercial side? Um, how do you recruit? Do you hire from within the industry or do you seek candidates with sort of specialized skill sets uh, that can add a different perspective? And, and when you use the word commercial side, to me, that means our sales team. Is that what you mean? Or you, what do you mean by the word commercial? I mean, marketing operations and just business operations in general. Okay. Okay. I just want to make sure we have the same definition. Right. Um, I think when we think about um, what we call our commercial business, which is like sales and marketing, um, there is not enough people that really know um, digital to be able to always go and hire. So obviously you hire some um, because you want to get an influx of people that kind of lived in this space. And I think it's one of the reasons you're seeing um, in the life sciences area, um, there are, we're actually hiring a lot of people that don't have a life science background, but we've worked in industries where we've adopted this maybe a few years ago. And so you have a bit more experience. Um, one of the things I'm really passionate about is how do we upskill the people we have? Um, there isn't enough talent, so companies do have to invest in, in growing this capability and growing the skill set. And so one of the things that we talk about a lot is how do we commit to what I call lifelong learning. So I start every day with 15 minutes of reading um, or listening to a podcast or talking to someone over a cup of coffee um, just to start my day with something new that I'm learning that I didn't know before. So. Today, I was learning about some data privacy laws that uh, are uh, being discussed in Montana. Um, and, you know, what does that mean and why are they doing it? Um, but I would say what I'm looking for when we're hiring is people with a natural curiosity where they want to learn and where they see the value of learning because technology and ways of working is changing so quickly. We used to say that you would learn something and it would, you know, have a shelf life of 30 years. So you could learn to do your job. And for the next 30 years, you could pretty much do your job with the knowledge that you had. The life shelf life of learning now has gotten down to five years. And I think it's going to go down to a couple of years, which means if you're not constantly upgrading and, and refreshing your skills, you're really going to get left behind. Mm -hmm. So when I'm hiring, what I'm looking for is people that are naturally inquisitive, um, people that are um, more open to change? Um, are they comfortable in ambiguity? 
you know, when they don't know all the, the right answers. And that's sometimes hard, especially for those of you, you know, working on your PhD, where you're used to having things really structured and, and formal, that, that sense of ambiguity is something that we struggle with at times. Um, and it's probably something that you may find yourselves struggling with at times, but it's almost more of this mindset because what you need to know to do your job is changing so rapidly that it, as long as I know you know how to learn, I can teach you what you need to do. So I think that's a big shift because I would say 20 years ago, you really were hired for your knowledge and your expertise where I think going forward, you'll be um, hired more for your ability to think it more creatively, drive innovation, uh, deal with ambiguity, um, those types of things. That's great. That's great. And I want to I want to move on to challenges. Before we do that, I'll I'll encourage our audience members uh, if you do have questions as Cindy's talking, uh, feel free to add them to the chat, um, and we will address them once we've gotten through uh, the initial round of questions that we have prepared. Um, we talked about data privacy and, and that being a challenge. And I think really with, with disruptive initiatives, um, they often require substantial change in that, you know, that can create tension within the business. Uh, multi-layer investment, uh, extensive capability building, and just generally a higher risk of failure than optimizing anything that already exists. exists. Um, what, in your opinion, are some of the life sciences industry's biggest challenges kind of concerning the adoption of digital? Yes. Yeah, so obviously, as a regulated industry, there are a lot of rules and a lot of ways of working that are really important, because if you don't do them right, um, you really can put the company at risk. And so I think one of the biggest challenges that I've seen coming in is, while that is very real, and we have to make sure we're always doing the right thing, there are a lot of things that don't need that level of regulation or, or rigor. And so in other aspects of our business, how we do certain components of manufacturing or certain components of sales or HR, finance, procurement, um, we put almost this heavy layer and complex layer across absolutely everything we do um, rather than focusing on where can you use digital, still be compliant, um, rather than sometimes we've got a little bit of a risk aversion and then we apply that to everything. So one of my favorite things is thinking about it in a, in a way that says, if you have a simple process, use simple processes to, to manage it. Where you have complex processes, that's where you have to really um, put more rigor and, and uh, make sure that you know, all the, all the uh, correct processes have been followed. But digital almost in its nature is quite quick and it, it comes with speed and agility, which doesn't always marry up to a regulated environment. And so we're, we're trying to find out how do we teach people digital in the areas that it's easier to do that? And how do we make sure that we're working externally in an ecosystem of other partners, uh, with regulators, with other government agencies to make sure that the mechanisms and the things that we're doing in digital translate when your external auditors come or when the regulators are, are, are there as well. So I think that's going to be the tension point is how do you work at speed in an industry that is really um, where rigor and discipline and, you know, thoroughness, et cetera, is, is such an important part of what we do. Mm -hmm. I think uh, on regulation, uh, one of the things that we've seen is that uh, regulatory authorities have been sort of flexible about a lot of processes during the pandemic. Um, quick example, you know, there are a lot of documents that were sort of accepted in formats that otherwise wouldn't have been considered under normal circumstances. Um, and overall, they seem to be sort of starting to change how they view innovation initiatives, um, really due to the you know emergence of powerful technologies such as cloud computing. Uh, as digital capabilities continue to evolve, do you see regulators adapting and being open to new possibilities at a similar pace? Yeah. So um, I was in a meeting with, um, actually it was a networking meeting of all things, um, similar to this, um, with the head of, of regulatory for the UK. And she 
she was talking that it has really opened her eyes and how she will run the UK regulatory department um, to think about how can they speed up and work differently. So I don't know in the US, and I haven't been in the industry to have the contacts here um, to know what they're thinking, but I thought that was pretty profound because she heads up all of um, you know, the regulatory agencies um, for the UK. And for her to say it's really opened her eyes to what they can do differently, I think gives us hope. Um, you know, especially for a company like AstraZeneca, we only produce life-saving medicines. So the, the products we um, produce are for people that have chronic disease or cancer. Um, and so the risk of death, you know, is, is high. And so when, when you have extra time that isn't needed, there is definitely time where it is needed. But when you build an extra time that's not needed, it means that somebody, there's the potential that they may not live, you know, longer. And, and so what she was talking about is the sense of urgency that that creates and why it's so vitally important for her and her department to, to rethink how they work is there's human lives at stake. And um, being new to the industry, that was really profound for me. You know, it was my first kind of interaction with somebody in the, in the regulatory space. And um, I, I think that's when your earlier question, when you say, are we at this inflection point in a massive, you know, change in our industry? I, I think we are. And, and you're seeing it evidenced by, um, you know, some of these different examples. Sure. And so, you know, how do you then measure how you're actually doing, right? So if you think about sort of financial output metrics, such as ROI on investment, um, they're not necessarily well suited to companies at the early stages of any process. Uh, how do you go about creating metrics and really prioritizing digital initiatives that really best serve your, your current priorities and, and your finite resources? Uh, and, and how does that change over time? So I think this is one of the hardest parts of our job because so much of how we used to measure our work and our productivity, as well as the financial outcomes of our company, were geared to, towards an industrial revolution metric. You know, productivity, how fast were the lines going? What was the, you know, the time to market, et cetera. In, in a digital world, what happens is almost that exponential curve. You know, things don't look like they're doing anything. And then all of a sudden, um, they start to multiply exponentially. And so we do struggle with having the right metrics to um, see if, if the digital initiatives are really working. So a lot of them are, are taking time to set up. You have to start to collect enough data over enough period of time that you can start to generate those insights. So that return on investment that we're really used to, to modeling out doesn't really work. And when you think of like startups, when a, when, when a company's, you know, first getting formed, they don't have those kind of metrics. In fact, for the first few years, their investors don't expect a return on investment. And yet for larger companies that, you know, um, uh, that are kind of in business, it's hard because they have shareholders, they have to put, you know, make returns on those. And therefore, sometimes it's difficult to make these investments that don't have immediate payback because, you know, the, the investing community expects that immediate payback in large companies like ours. So I think that is one of the biggest challenges. I haven't figured it fully out yet. What we're trying to do is say, how do we measure the outcomes versus the inputs? And it's a much more difficult exercise. Some of the ones that we're trying to use is tracking, you know, time to drug discovery. So if we're using AI to, to kind of, um, it, you know, advance the drug discovery, can we cut, you know, 50% of the time out to find that target drug? Or can we use knowledge graphs and say, you know, what is the amount of recommendations we get? How many of those recommendations actually you know, come to later stages of clinical trial. So we're trying to play around a little bit with what are the metrics that make sense, because it may not always be a financial metric that you would see on your PL. And I imagine you you um, outsource some of that measurement in terms of just the data tracking and the capabilities that you have on the data side. And, you know, one of the things that you've talked about in the past 
um, is really a need to strengthen your technology-driven partnerships uh, at AZ. So what's the balance between the digital initiatives that you have that you outsource uh, versus what you do in-house? And, and how does that really differ from, from other industries that you've worked in in the past? Yeah. So uh, at AstraZeneca, we use the four-prong approach. We call them the four Bs, the so buy, borrow, um, uh, bought, and I'm forgetting the fourth one uh, right now. But sometimes you buy in a skill that you don't have. Sometimes you borrow it. You work in partnership in an ecosystem with another company. Sometimes you're upskilling your own people. And sometimes you're automating, which is the bot. And so we think about those kinds of resources to say, how do we want to work going forward? Um, partly, I've just forgotten your, your question. Can you say that again? Sorry. So what's the balance between initiatives that you're outsourcing? Oh, well, which is what well we do in insource. Okay. So with this kind of holistic approach, then what we do is where we have um, no expertise, then we want to buy in a partner. While, but, but always with the goal that we're building that expertise. So if it's competitive advantage and we don't have the skill, we'll bring a partner in or we'll bring consultants in, but we're upskilling ourselves at the same time. Where it's not competitive advantage, that's something that we may say, hey, can you help you know, just run this for us? And then there's this group in the middle where it's stuff we want to do, but maybe there's a surge, obviously, during the, the pandemic and the vaccine, we didn't have a vaccine business. So that was a surge for us. And then you might bring in partners to help you, um, you know, during that surge. I think for, for me in the way our IT organization is, is kind of um, constructed is I'm mainly insourced. So most of the technology um, work done at AstraZeneca is done by in, internal employees that can really partner hand in hand, because as you guys are seeing, you know, it's, it's you need the domain expertise, right, of, of pharma and, and how the business works. And then you need the technology expertise to really bring it together if you're going to kind of leverage digital to its fullest. So we're seeing this convergence of IT people have to think like business people and, and business people need to have more technology savvy um, so that they can really come together. So really what we're looking at is where do we want competitive advantage? We want our people doing that. We may need to upskill in order to do that. What is commodity? And we can we can just get some help to out, you know, basically outsource that. And then what is the stuff in the middle that we normally do, but sometimes we might search? Great, great. And um, I think it's a good uh, time to really uh, uh, segue into sort of the industry moving forward. So from, from telemedicine to experiments with adaptive trial design, uh, virtual trial execution, and really differentiated patient engagement, there are numerous models that life sciences companies are working hard to scale. Uh, what are you most excited about with respect to the impact that digital can have on the industry? Yeah, I mean, it's this ability to drive better patient outcomes. Um, the fact that we can start to see a direct correlation between technology and you know life expectancy or um, when I first got here, one of our um, senior leaders was like, yeah, the cure for cancer will be found in data. And as a technologist, I'm like, I mean, even right now, it gives me goosebumps to think that we can really use technology to identify drug targets quicker, to um, do things in silico so that we can test far more permeations than we ever could if a human had to do things manually, that we can flow that all the way down through our clinical trials into kind of our, our regulatory medical affairs processes into um, our manufacturing commercial business to shorten the amount of time it takes um, to get something that will be life-saving and life-changing to patients. And um, one of the things that I, I have to say I just absolutely love about where I work is you feel it every day. Like you feel this direct connection to what we do every day and the impact it has on, on people and families and communities. And I remember when I, I first joined, the amount of junior level IT people that talked about the patient was just beyond anything I'd experienced, even in consumer goods companies, where you know, every time they're doing stuff, they're talking about how this impacts the patient. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I think it gives us a sense of purpose 
I mean, it's been a long week. Monday, I started at 4 a.m. My last meeting was at 10 p.m. This morning, I started quite early and I'll finish up around 7. Um, but you feel so energized because you know what you're doing really matters and it really changes lives. So, you know, just that opportunity, I, I think, is pretty profound. And, and for those of you, you know, moving into to this kind of a field um, and the whole life science field, um, I was really shocked. And I came from Unilever, which was a very, very purpose-driven company, um, to an industry that makes me feel even more purpose-driven um, and the impact. And, you know, um, you, you kind of opened up at the beginning. I think the, the um, beginning part of my LinkedIn profile says, I want to leverage technology to have a meaningful impact in the lives of a billion people. Mm-hmm. And when you think about... Um, being in a life science company, we actually can do that. And when I first said that, I thought it was kind of a, it, it was kind of almost a, you throw it out there, but you're not really sure that you'll ever achieve it. Um, but now what I'm seeing is actually, we really do have the opportunity to impact, you know, billions of lives on this planet. And uh, I think we're really enjoying that. I, I certainly am. Sure. Yeah, that's, 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 that's really great, Cindy. Um, I, I'm conscious of time, so uh, I have one more question. And um, really, that's uh, in your in your eyes, what do uh, life sciences future digital leaders look like? And do you have any words of advice for for audience members with with an interest in the field? Yeah. So uh, this blending of technology and, and domain expertise, I think, is going to be really important. It used to be that you'd have scientists and then you'd have technologists, and now. I think we're seeing the amount of PhDs I have in IT is very high. Um, and yet the amount of people that are technically savvy in our R&D group is very high. So I think for, for you guys in your generation, it's going to be this multifunctional, multidisciplinary perspective that, that it's a hybrid. Um, so I think that's really important. It's going to be very data-driven. Um, most of the people in my generation um, the way we approach things is experience-based. We did a number of the different jobs. We have the experience. We can then apply that to new situations. Um, one of the things I personally struggle with is really being data-driven and taking decisions based on what the data is telling me, not because I've done it and been successful doing it a certain way in my past. So I think for all of you, this learning how to use data and have it give you new insights um, is going to be really important. And one of the things that I remember seeing when I was first starting on my digital journey is I went to Real Madrid, um, the football, uh, the soccer um, uh, club in Spain, and I met with their chief digital officer. And he was talking about how when they started looking at the data, the biggest fan base for Real Madrid is not in Spain. It's actually in Indonesia. Mm. And they would never have thought about that and as a result it changed how they marketed and what languages they were using on their websites and it always really resonated with me that we think we know what we should do but if we really pay attention to the data it may lead us to to something new so i think that's really important um you know really thinking about ai as augmented intelligence i think a lot of us what you know uh, thought of it more as artificial intelligence and it was going to you know kind of take over human jobs. I think I might have even said that at one point in my career, um, where now it's more of how do you use that intelligence to augment the thinking of a scientist and, and really seeing it as complementary because it can at times feel threatening um, to people. So that will be, and then the speed of experimentation, like how do you do things in silico quicker, faster, um, you know, test things in the market, et cetera, I think will be a, a big piece as well. And I think there are a lot of le- lessons to be learned from other industries as you sort of figure out how to uh, sort of move as quickly as we see early stage startups across um, other industries. So uh, that's that's incredibly helpful. Um, we have a question from the audience. Uh, Kwaku, thank you. Um, Cindy, is the role of academic research institutions as a primary source of scientific discovery changing uh, as, as biotech companies go digital? Yeah. So guys, you're probably more skilled in some of these questions than I am, but I'll give you my perspective, but I'll ask for forgiveness if I don't get it right. 
you know, I think academia is such an important aspect of, of life sciences. But all of a sudden, you're seeing, we got Microsoft in there, we got Google in there. Like, we've got companies that have no, I mean, Amazon just became a, pharma, a pharmacy. You know, they're, they're now um, uh, impacting, you know, kind of our supply chain because they're looking to, to kind of break into the space. So I think they're going to be parts of life sciences that um, more kind of startups and, and tech companies will step into certain areas, certain white spaces, um, and become real dominant players. There are certain things due to regulations and, and things like that, that they won't break into um, as readily. But I think our disruptors are going to come from very um, different places than they have before. And I think the big tech companies, um, we certainly are working with them in their kind of life science and, and healthcare um, verticals, uh, whether it's Microsoft or Google or AWS, et cetera. And I think they're going to step into the space pretty heavily. And so that partnership, the ecosystem uh, partnership is, is really important. Great. Great. Thank you. And another one. Uh, so the life sciences and in, in pharma in, in, uh, in particular hasn't had the strongest reputation uh, over the last few years. Do you see digital changing that in any way? You mean in terms of just overall industry reputation? I think in just in, in, in terms of um, reputation amongst consumers specifically, um, over the last few years, maybe there there may have been uh, things that uh, uh, people have um, sort of been challenged by and, and not necessarily uh, portrayed uh, the pharmaceutical industry in in the most positive light. Yeah. So you know, so for me, it's it's a little new because I was living in Europe and, and you just don't really see the, the ads. People aren't really talking about pharmaceutical companies like they do. And, and I think I'm seeing it more now that I'm back in the U.S. Um, you know, and I do think that, um, you know, there was generally, you know, some negative connotations with the, with the industry. But I think especially through COVID and the, the response and, um, you know, I look at, at even what we're doing and we came out very early and said, listen, we'll make zero profit on any vaccine during the pandemic because it's the right thing to do. Um, I think that is helping, you know, that people are starting. AstraZeneca was not a household name, you know, 15 months ago. Um, not many people, like when I first took the job, like a lot of people were like, what? what? And what do they do? And now, obviously, it's much more of a household name. But um, I do think that there is um, more positive things that have come out, you know, in, in probably the, the last year. Um, in this space, but you know, partly anymore, it feels like any industry. If I look back at, at some of the industries I've worked in, um, you know, you, you were, if you work in the financial industry, you know, there was the whole um, controversy in, in 2008 and the type of loans you have. I worked at Mars, which is an amazing company that I love. Um, but you know, you think of sugar and obesity and candy and, you know, so I had one person when I was considering a job there, I said, I don't know if this is really the best industry. And they were like, well, which one is the good one? You know, um, if you, you know, if, uh, if you're really looking at it, I think people's expectations of companies rightfully so is, is getting um, more stringent. People want to feel like companies are doing the right thing. Um, and I think for every industry, even the oil industry, if you look at what's happened, oil and gas, which used to be, you know, kind of the cornerstone of, of everything, now has a very negative um, ramification. And I think this is the cultural shift that's happening, where people want, it, it's no longer just about making money, it's are you doing the right thing for the planet? Are you doing the right thing for people? Are you creating communities and having a positive impact on society? And so this purpose-driven nature um, I think is is going to take hold and more and more companies are going to have to link what they do to kind of a greater good. And I think as, as, as a follow-up question to that, do you then see digital playing more of a role with early stage biotechs and and, um, and pharma companies? It's, it's typically been applied, I think, to later stage companies where, you know, they've completed the R&D process, they've completed their clinical trials and they're going to market, right, on the commercial side. Uh, do you see digital having a role sort of at that early stage? 
I do because I think again, as you're as you're looking at how do you find the right molecules, how do you sort through, you know, the mass amount of information out there to to start to figure out what you should be focused on. How do you, you know, identify the right, you know, kind of molecules and and targets? Um, all of of that, I think, is really enabled through, um, you know, a lot of use of AI, deep learning, machine learning, um, knowledge graphs, um, processing with with natural um, language processing, you know, NLP type type things. So I do think that there will be a place for it. It depends what play, how do you use it in each of the various areas, I think is, is going to be more of the question. But um, I don't think there'll be a part of any business that's going to be able to get away from really, you know, kind of embracing a digital transformation and thinking about things differently. Great, great. Now, these have been some great questions from the audience. Um, I want to give you a little bit more of your time back. You mentioned that we started this week uh, at 4 a.m. on Monday. Um, but uh, before that, Cindy, uh, we, we all really appreciate you being here with us today. Um, this has been incredibly insightful uh, for all of us. And, um, you know, just a massive thank you. Uh, to, for you're you're very welcome. And, and actually, thanks for inviting me. Um, all of you really are the next generation. You are the ones that will help, you know, all of us transform. And uh, I often talk about, I have three mentors under the age of 25 because I want to learn what you guys do intuitively. You know, you're digital na natives and we need to be learning from you. And so, um, you know, I, I'd invite you at times to say, why don't you come talk at our companies and tell us a little bit about what you see as the future and um, and how you think we should be acting because, um, again, we're all trying to retool ourselves and transform where for many of you, you've just grown up in this space and probably are far more skilled at it than even I am. So uh, I'd offer I'd offer you that back. I, I, I it looks like I actually missed a few questions. I do apologize. to the That's people. OK. I've got some time. Um, and so uh, let's try to cover those. Uh, apologies to the audience members that, that took the time to do that for us. Um, so the first one, will, will AstraZeneca expand in the wearable space, uh, such as transdermal patch therapeutics? Yeah, so I mean, I think in general, wearables are going to become really important. And digital therapeutics is, is a big, um, you know, kind of um, thrust as well for us. So um, you know, we are looking at, I mean, I just got an Apple watch. I'm not an Apple watch kind of person, but we're working on some digital therapeutics and I want to be kind of part of the team that's building it, um, which means I got to start to, to see, but you know, how do we take oxygen readings and how do we, um, you know, start to think about wearables? I think they play a really important role in getting that real time information about what's happening uh, with a patient. So I think this is a space, not only AstraZeneca, but, but so many different companies, eh, whether you're not Nike, whether you're life sciences, whether you're, you know, kind of in, in, you know, more general healthcare, I think wearables are going to become part of just what we do all the time. And it'll move from an act, uh, you know, kind of an active engagement to a more passive engagement. When you think of the internet of things, and I don't know if you guys are, are talking about the spatial web which is basically a 3D version of the internet where everything's IoT'd and censored. And you, when you walk into a room, um, it just knows what you need and what you're doing and, you know, your readings. You're not, but today we take a, a device and we put it on a freestyle Libra and we get your, your glucose monitoring. In the future, you won't have to do that. You won't have to take that step. Things will just become more what we call ambient. And it'll just be all around you. And, and I think um, we're doing some pretty cutting edge stuff in, on the spatial web and some of the companies that are leading kind of the setting the standards in that space, because I think that's going to be a massive uh, new trend. Wow. Thank you. And thank you, Lawrence, for, for asking the question. Uh, a question from Ricky. Over the next 10 to 20 years, what new technology currently in development do you think will have the most impact uh, for biotech and pharma? And how do you think that will be leveraged to create that impact? Yeah. So, Ricky, I think one one of them will be the spatial web, um, and the fact that everything will become become IoT, um, and 
you know, it'll know when you want to know where your glasses are, your glasses will have a center and it'll tell you, you know, oh, you left them on the kitchen counter, you know, type thing. But imagine that from a healthcare perspective, it knows when my glucose levels are changing. And before I get into crisis, it can already alert me to, to you know, take steps and measures um, to, to kind of correct that. So I think you're going to start to see this blending of, of technology, whether it's wearables or spatial web is the next generation playing a big part. I, I do think we're going to see what we call XR, so artificial um, augmented reality, virtual reality becoming, I'm already seeing it in our company. Um, we just did a, a piece of work last week. Um, and all of us had our, our VR headsets on. We met in a virtual conference center. Um, you know, we, we whiteboarded things. And, you know, we were based in five countries, right? So when you think of sustainability and not traveling, um, and more importantly, from a, from a life sciences perspective, some of these deep special scientists are really important. But they don't have time to sit on planes and fly all over the world. So through some of those technologies, we can get to the best scientists because they only have to give us two hours of their time, not three days to travel to us, spend two hours with us and travel back. So I think all of a sudden this knowledge expert sharing is going to radically change. And when you can tap into that kind of expertise, again, you can, you can really impact the life cycle of drugs. Um, things like quantum computing are really important. I was on with about 25 other CIOs today. Um, talking about quantum because when you think of the data that's going to be created, when whether it's imaging or you know other other aspects, um, all of a sudden we don't have the compute power to actually um, process that level of data. Um, and so, what do we think about in terms of some of that next generation um, kind of just basic technology? You know, how do you move that data around the world? Do you have big enough pipes? You know, et cetera. So um, I think there are a number of things, um, and I think I think life sciences is going to be one of the industries because we, you know, we're a little bit later adopters. We're really going to, as I said previously, going to be able to do this leapfrog. Right. Great. Thank you, Cindy. Thank you, Ricky, for the question. Uh, and then a final question from Hugh. We talked about this a little bit um, earlier, but how do you measure success in applying digital tech to to life sciences at AZ? And what are some of those key metrics uh, beyond financial metrics um, and, and clinical trial results? Yeah. So, I mean, I think I'll, I'll answer it a little bit more generically just to, to start. But for me, the metrics in digital are when you start to see people work differently. So it's almost, it's not as quantifiable. It's almost a little bit intangible. But you see it. You see it in the way people think. They're thinking about new business adjacencies, new things that they never thought of before. I mean, last night I was thinking, you know, wow, well, if if one of the important I, – I had learned that like 40% of people with cancer don't follow their, their treatment plan, which is strange. You think, oh, my God, I got cancer. You, you think most people are following the plan of, of treatment. Well, how can we just even use technology to help them stay on, on target? If they're working with a doctor, could they have a you know Facebook group, WhatsApp group, where the doctor is interacting with them on some kind of social media, reminding them about just general things they can do to stay healthy? Um, and then when that leads to a clinical question, then they can drop, jump off into a more you know kind of private um, you know forum. But all of a sudden, you have this way to connect people. And, and, and so for me, it's, are we seeing that things um, are, are changing in the way that people come up with new ideas, approach their work, do those types of things. Mm -hmm. um, and, and when we see that, it'll start to permeate, whether it's the clinical space or whether it's the, the commercial space or the, the operations manufacturing space. It's more about, are you touching the DNA? Is is, is digital part of the DNA of the company or is it just being done by this group of people who happen to have the word digital in mm. their title? Mm. And so you'll hear me talk a lot about the difference between doing digital and being digital. And the doing digital is when you look for these use cases and you, you do these digital initiatives. Being digital is where that way of working, that mindset, that cultural shift 
is now just part of the way the company operates. And, and so then, then you can apply it to any kind of, you know, aspects of, of life science. Great. Great. Thank you for that. And I think that's, that's a good place for us to end. Uh, be digital rather than do digital. Um, again, Cindy, thank you so much for everything. Thank you to the audience members. Um, this has been incredibly helpful, incredibly insightful. And um, uh, we will send this around um, as a recording for everyone that attended today in case you need to, to watch it over or send it to anyone else that you know. Um, and again, thank you all and good night. Thanks for inviting me. Nice right. to see you all. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.